Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. So I made reference to it two weeks ago. We talked about lifting holy hands to God. Last week, we talked about the wise men coming, and they were overjoyed to bow down and worship him, to open up their treasures and share with him what they had uh, gotten, what they've gotten in this life. They were giving him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Next week, we're actually going to bow down. We're going to kneel uh, before Jesus. Today, we're going to talk about pouring out our hearts, and we're going we're gonna to worship from the depths of our soul. And, and I'm just going to take a stab that most of you here are in one of three seasons right now. Either you're in a blessed season where God is doing more in your life than you could ever possibly imagine, financially, relationally, emotionally, spiritually. So you're a blessed season. Some of you are in a bland season where you're really just existing. You're not even living. You're getting up doing the same thing every day. It's just bland and, and there's nothing in your life that's, that's outstanding at all. Or you're broken. And you are at the bottom of the well. You're at the bottom of the pit. In the Old Testament, in the Psalms, it talks about he lifted me out of the pit, out of the miry clay. Some of you are there. You're broken emotionally, spiritually, physically. And so that kind of covers the gamut, doesn't it? You're either blessed, you're the bland, or you're broken. And, and wherever you are, the whole purpose of today is to help you understand what it means to pour out your heart before God. And so I want you to, to listen to the words of David. He was... Um, he was broken when he writes these words in Psalm uh, 142, beginning in verse 2. And, and I've got some words highlighted there. I want you to read those words when I get there. You get a one-word warm-up, and then you say, pour out with me. Ready? I pour out. Do it again. I pour out my complaints before him and tell him all my troubles. When I'm overwhelmed, you alone know the way I should turn. Wherever I go, my enemies have set traps for me. I look for someone to come up and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares a bit what happens to me. Then I pray to you, O Lord. And he's about to call God something really significant. It's the bolded words. When we get there, read them out loud with me. He said, I say, you are my place of refuge. Say that again, place of refuge. Now, David's not having a good time. He's not going, dude, God, I'm in a place of blessing. He's not saying that. He said, my life is painful right now. And, and so I want, to, I want you to write this down. I'll show you where this comes from. Suffering greatly or drastically reduces your wish list. Suffering greatly reduces your wish list. Now, what do I mean by that? When, when you are suffering, you're at the bottom of the pit, you don't care what kind of car you drive. When you're at the bottom of the pit, you don't care what kind of house you live in. When your child is about to die, about to breathe their last, you don't worry about the clothes that you're wearing. Suffering drastically reduces your wish list. And look at the last part that David said. If you'll put the, the last verse back up there. You are my place of refuge. You are all I really want in life. He had been anointed by God to be the next king. And he says, when I'm suffering, all I care about is God. And guess what? If God ever has to choose between your holiness and your happiness, what do you think he's going to choose? Holiness. So if it takes suffering in your life to bring you to a place that you trust on God, God's going to let you suffer. 
And you have to choose at that moment, am I going to run to God as a place of refuge or am I going to get a bitter, hard heart? Those are really the only two options. Run to him, experience him as a place of refuge, or get a bitter, hard heart and turn your back on God. Now look what David says in, in Psalm 62, 8. He uses this exact same phrase, and this is a short verse, so I want you to read the whole verse with me. You ready? Trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for he is our refuge. Say that word, refuge. Refuge. It literally means shelter from danger. Now, in the Old Testament times, when David lived, there were, in Israel, there were six cities called cities of refuge. God set these up because he knew that there might be some uh, time when somebody would accidentally kill somebody else. Let me give you an example. So you're out there and you are chopping down your, your tree with your axe because they didn't have chainsaws. Oh, bless them. I've done one time. I've chopped down a tree with an axe one time. I'll never do it again. Chainsaw. Anyway, they're chopping and all of a sudden the axe head flies off and it hits your neighbor and it kills your neighbor. Was there intent to murder your neighbor? Was there any desire on your part or forethought on your part to murder your neighbor? No, because of that, God knew that there would be instances where people would be killed. It would be an accident. And so he sets up these cities of refuge. So let's say that you're driving your cart and suddenly your oxen act up and they break away and your cart comes and runs over somebody and you accidentally kill them. Was there intent to kill them? No. Now, if you were carting under the influence little peyote and carding, then that's a different story. But God knew that there might be accidental death, and so it wasn't breaking the law. You would go to this city, you would flee, because if you killed somebody, the law said that their next closest relative, their kinsman redeemer, could take your life because you took their life. But in this case, if you ran to, literally, you didn't go back and pack, you ran to the city of refuge, you would have a trial, you would be found, if, if everything was in your favor, you would be found not guilty. You would be protected, and the kinsman redeemer could not come and kill you because God knew there would be instances where you wouldn't be breaking the law. It would be an accident. So the cities of refuge were a safe place for people to hide. How many of you had a safe place when, when you were a kid? How many of you, your safe place was, was a closet? No, because what's in the closet? Monsters. The monsters are in there. My safe place was right in between. When I grew up until I was six years old, I didn't ever have problem with monsters because I was in mom and dad's bedroom. I had a little twin bed at the foot of mom and dad's bed. We, we had four children, only three bedrooms. Sis got a room to herself. My brother shared a room and then I shared the room with mom and dad. So my little twin bed, there's barely enough room for dad to walk in between my bed and his bed to get in bed at night. So I didn't really worry a whole lot about monsters because mom and dad were there and supernaturally monsters can't get you when somebody else is there, right? So my, my, um, safe place was in between the dresser and mom and dad's bed. Anytime I'd get upset or I'd get scared or whatever, I would run in and I would sit there and I'd usually stay there until one of my older brothers, there's 12 and 14 years older than me, one of them would come up and they'd say, what are you doing? And, you know, I wouldn't want to tell them because my dad was a real man and you didn't show any emotion. And, and so my brothers would take me up on their lap and they'd say, tell me what's going on. And I would pour out my heart to them, you know, and, and it would be better just because they listened to me. And, and this idea of having a safe place, some of you had a blankie or you had, you had a clubhouse. I had a little pillow. One time we left it in Gary, Indiana when I was six years old and we had to write letters because there, you know, you didn't have internet and you didn't have cell phones and they sent back my pillow and whew, I didn't sleep for two days till my little pillow came home. That was my, my little safe pillow. Sometimes though, our, our safe place is actually a person like mom and dad, you know, when they come in and the monsters, they close the door, it supernaturally seals that door to the closet and those monsters can't get out. 
you know, and how when your arms in my room, my, I was the farthest away from mom and dad and, and my bedroom was over the basement in our house and they always left the basement door open because where we grew up, there's tornadoes happen. You know, we have, we'd have neighbors run into our house whenever there were tornadoes around and that black hole of the basement, there was stuff living there. And, and my bed was right next to the wall. And, and if the mattress came out, I thought, I thought there were huge rats down there. If I left my arm or my foot hanging out over that crack that they would pull down and gnaw it off. And so I would freak out at night. But, but if mom and dad came in, they would go away and they'd tuck you in and supernaturally they couldn't get around the tucked in seal, right? Okay. Well, as we get older, sometimes, well, actually our monsters are very, very different. Sometimes when we're adults, our monsters are a marriage that is, that is just dying. It's collapsing. Sometimes the monster is financial collapse. Sometimes it's children who have strayed from you and from God. And you're thinking, Oh dear God, please protect them. We all have monsters that attack us, but no matter what your monster is, God wants to be your place of refuge. God wants you to cry out to him so that you can experience him as a safe place to go. And, and if you, if you think about it, this makes a whole lot of sense. God already knows everything that you're thinking. And so when you are honest with him, it creates intimacy. This happens in relationships. If you're married to somebody and you have secrets from one another, you don't have the intimacy that, that God desires for you to have because you're holding something back. Either you're lying or you're just not giving all the information. The only way to get really intimate relationship is to be totally honest. And so God wants, God wants you to be honest so that he can, he and you can become very, very close. And it can't happen. He already knows it. You're just, you're, you're acting like he doesn't know. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in your mind. He wants you to confess that. And see, I told you two weeks ago that when we lift our hands, as we move towards God with our hands, his heart moves towards us. As we bow before him and we open up our treasures and we say, God, money is not my God. You are my God. God moves towards us. And when we open up our hearts and we pour out our hearts in gut level honesty, the God of the universe moves toward us and he desires a closer relationship with us. Now today I'm going to encourage you before we finish to pour out your heart before God, just to let it rip before God. But before you do, I want to remind you of two or three things. First, as you pour out your heart, remember God's faithfulness in the past. As you cry to him, I want you to think about what God's already done in your life. And, and specifically, we're going to look at Psalm 42. We aren't sure who wrote it, but we think it was David. A lot of scholars believe it was David when he was running from his oldest son, Absalom. Absalom was trying to kill David and take over his kingdom. That's a bad day. If you're a dad and your son wants to take over your kingdom, kill you. So he's at a very, very low point in his life. And look what happens. Psalm 42, 3. My tears have been my food day and night. That's pretty bad, right? While men say to me all day long, where is your God? How many of you have ever cried yourself to sleep? Be honest. Yeah, a number of us. You're hurting. You feel all alone. The greatest king in Israel's history, David, had a point in his life where he said, my tears are actually my food. And while he is crying, people are saying, dude, if you're following God, where is he? And I want to, I want to encourage you to be very, very careful who you listen to, who you go to for advice when you're hurting, because there's a whole lot of cow manure out there masquerading as advice. You need Christ followers who are more mature than you are, who are not emotionally involved in your situation to look into your life and speak into your life. And you need to be studying God's word and you need to be surrounded by people who will pray with you and for you and encourage you. What I love about David is as he's pouring out his heart to God, as he's crying out to God, he doesn't stop there. A lot of people stop there. A lot of people just complain, gripe, get a bitter heart, turn their backs on God. David doesn't do that. 
in the midst of this terrible time, look what he says in verse four. These things, I want you to say this with me so I get there. These things, two words, I remember. Say it again. These things, as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. I just chose the NIV because I like to say in festive throng. That's fun to say, Joe. These things I remember as I ache from within, as the weight of the world is crushing my soul, I remember going to the house of God. And, and you can almost see the, the gear shift in his mind and he starts preaching to himself. He says, remember when I went to the house of God and I led the praises and worship? Remember, remember, remember. And you know when he remembered? It was while he was pouring out his heart to God, while he was being gut level honest with God. Some of you are bitter today and you're far from God today and you're not having relationships like you should today because you are holding something in. You've never confessed it to God. You've never poured out your heart to God. You've never confessed it to another person. And what we say around here, we believe this at the core of who we are as a church and as Christ followers, that if you want to be forgiven for, from your sin, if you want to be forgiven from sin that someone else has committed against you, that's not even really your fault, it's somebody else's, you confess it to God. First John one nine says, um, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want to be forgiven. You confess it to God. But if you want to be healed, you need to confess to another Christ follower. James half brother, Jesus said, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Reason some of you are bitter is because you've never poured out your heart to God. The reason some of you are still making the same mistakes over and over that you have in the past is because you don't have a Christ follower that you can open up and confess to and they can pray for you. God just made it where, where you need somebody that you can talk to who will pray with you so that you can be healed. Sometimes I preach to myself just this last week. I have what I call preacher's hangover. And if you've ever been a preacher, you understand. Because my day usually starts about 5.30 a.m. And it's a long day. If we have small groups and whatever. So I go from 5.30, I might get a 30-minute nap. And then, you know, I, I get back in to my house at 8.30 that night. And so last Monday morning, I woke up. I didn't sleep well. The dogs were barking outside. And I just didn't sleep well. And I woke up. I was exhausted. And Satan started whispering in my ear, you're worthless. This church will never thrive with you as pastor. It's going to fail because of you. And I was going, we had a good time yesterday (laughs) in worship. And Joe and Janie both at different times during the day said to me, nobody ever said following God would be easy. And then Joe's quote sitting out there, he said, if God were to show you all the opposition you would face to follow his will, would you have said yes? Look in scripture. God doesn't ever give anybody all of the directions. Say, see at the end, God gives you the step, the first step. And he wants you to come back for him. Because if you knew how hard it would be, if I'd known how hard it would be to start this church, I never would have done it. But when I remember, oh, there's so many, so many incredible things that are happened, that have happened. And I remember those things. So when, when, when you face opposition, you need to cry out to God, pour out your soul. And you say, God, I don't understand. God, I don't know why you're not doing what I think you could or should do in my life. I do not understand. Where are you? And as you do that, remember what God has done in your past. He's never turned his back on you, even though you've turned your back on him repeatedly. 
In the Old Testament, there's this guy named Jeremiah. We call him the the weeping prophet. And if you ever read the story of his life, you would understand why he's the weeping prophet. One time he was thrown into a cistern because he was speaking the word of God. And and he was thrown into a well and he was left there and and nobody paid attention to him. And every time, and he said to God, he said, God, you've deceived me. I I said I was going to do this and you said this and God, you've deceived me. And if I try not to speak your word, God, it's like a burning in my bones and it bursts out. He's, he's messed up. And, and in Lamentations, which means the lament that we're about to look at, Jeremiah for, for 19 verses just whines and complains and lays it out before God. And, and I, I want you to understand that you have permission to do what Jeremiah did. When you're hurting, you need to pour out your heart before God. You need to say, God, I, I don't know where you are. I don't know if my marriage is going to make it. God, I don't know where you are financially. If you don't show up financially, God, I am not going to make it. God, I don't know what, where you are when my kid's doing this and you say, oh God, have mercy on my child. I can't believe they're still doing what they've been doing. Have mercy on my child. Jeremiah shows us how to do this. And some people think that's disrespectful, but if God already knows your heart and if honesty leads to intimacy, God wants you to be gut level honest with him today. Look what Jeremiah says. Lamentations 3.19. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. I'm willing to bet that you've never been left in a, in a well and ignored for days on, time, on end, right? I'm willing to bet you've not ever been taken into captivity. I'm willing to bet that you, most of you have never suffered while your nation is being overrun by sinful people. What I'm saying is you've not had it as bad as Jeremiah. Look what Jeremiah says in the middle is, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. You ever heard of the the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness? Morning by morning, new mercies I see. That's where it comes from is this verse where Jeremiah is just pouring out his heart and he goes, okay, wait, wait, wait. Your, your mercies are, are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the middle of pouring out his soul, he remembers the goodness of God. And some of you need to remember that if it weren't for the goodness of God, you would not be where you are today. You need to remember what a sinner you were and how God saved you from your sins and wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life. You need to remember that, that one time that God answered a prayer and you look back and you say that had to be God because nobody else knew what was going on and it was a miracle of God. You need to remember when you were hurting and you felt all alone and you read a verse that maybe you have read 20 times before, but that one time you read it, it jumped off the page and it was like an arrow from God straight to your soul. You need to remember when you came to church and it was as if God had written the sermon and he was preaching to you and nobody else was in the room. You need to remember that. That's what God is doing. I still dare to hope when I remember this. And in 2003, New Life Community Church was one year old and we went on a vacation. Janie and I and the kids went on a vacation with my family because we had no money. And so wherever the family was going, they were going to pay for it. Wherever they got to go, we went on vacation. We came back and two families left the church. Two of my best friends left the church. Didn't tell me, just, just stopped coming. And when your church is 10 families and two families leave, it's pretty obvious, right? And so I wept. I cried myself to sleep. I thought my heart was going to explode. And in the midst of all of that, God spoke to my soul and he said, put on your big boy pants and keep doing the last thing I told you to do, which was start this church. Yes, sir. 2004, new life is two years old. We go on a vacation because we're poor and we go over my my mom and dad want to go because they're paying for it. And we come back from vacation and one of my best friends left the church. While I was gone on vacation, didn't tell me. 
And I cried and I, I, I thought my heart was going to explode. And God says, what they do is of no consequence to you. You do what I've told you to do, which was start New Life Community Church. And then for the next three years, Janie and I did not go on vacation because we're like, dude, every time we leave, somebody, we can't afford it. We're not big enough. No more vacations. For, we really did. We're like, mm, we're not going on vacation. So when, when we finally did, we're like praying, dear God, let nobody leave. <laughs> when I'm getting emotional because they're, they're here. When, when I go through a tough time, I remember the very first baptism in our church. Remember Keith and Heather in, in a swimming pool in somebody's backyard and, and they were arm in arm and we baptized them together. And then right after that, my little Rachel, six years old, I baptized her. I remember things like that. God's, anytime that I'm struggling, God sends somebody usually to say, hey, remember this, remember this. Just this week, I was watching a video and, and I saw Hannah's baptism. I found it on an old hard drive that I hadn't looked at in years. And, and I saw Hannah's baptism when she was six years old. And God just sends things to remind me that he's done it before. He's going to do it again. I still dared hope when I remember the first time, 2010. January of 2010 is when the earthquake hit Haiti. A month later, I'm studying uh, in my Bible study and I felt like God say, you need to go to Haiti. And I remember coming to the church that next Sunday. And I said to, to the church, I don't know if I'm supposed to go to Haiti or not, but I just kind of want to know if you guys are interested. So 20 people stayed after church that day, six months, seven months later, we were in Haiti in the midst of unbelievable devastation. And there on the last night, I said to the group, I said, do you guys think we need to come back? And everyone said, oh, we have no choice but to come back. The, the devastation is so much, we've got to come back. I've been nine, eight, eight times now. Next summer, July 15 through 22 is, is my ninth time that I'm going to go to Haiti. I told them, I told you that I, as the Lord allows me, I'm going to keep going till I'm 70 years old and then we'll renegotiate that contract, the Lord and I will. Um, but, but we're going to a new place this year. We're going to Jacmel. And we're going to be on this, this mountain overlooking this unbelievable, um, uh, ocean scene. You can see the ocean frontage. Um, we're going to get to go to this, uh, this, uh, waterfall that's just like out of, out of some postcard. And that'll be our fun day that, that day. We're going to do children's ministry. This is a very small church. We're going to be staying in the church. They're building a school right next to it because they have the school in the church right now and they just, they don't have room anymore. So we're going to be working on the school. We're probably going to be working on the pastor's house because he lives in a shack that if a strong wind comes, it's going to fall down and he doesn't want anything for himself. He only wants something for the church or for the school. We're going to do medical missions. I don't know who all is going to go, but I just paid the deposit for our 20 flights to, to go to Haiti. We're going to fly all the way on Friday. We have to. We don't have any other option this year. We're going to fly all the way to Haiti on Friday, spend the night, get up and drive to Jock Mill and be in one of God's unbelievable paradises for a week ministering to people. I still remember all the stuff that God did. And we, the first year we went, we were in a flood so massive that I fully expected to look up and see Noah and his ark coming by with a rope pulling us up because I'm telling you, the water was rising and we were stuck in traffic. And, and I'm thinking, if Caleb dies, he was with me in the back of this little tap tap. It's a, it's basically a, a small pickup with an extended camper. It's put up and then you have like stadium seating in there and it fits 12 Americans. It fits about 112 Haitians. They always say there's room for one more Haitian and they'll jump in. And, and a Haitian lady in the middle of this flood jumped in. You know, this was the craziest thing that, I, that I'd ever seen. And, and God provided. And we got out. We, we all made it. Because I thought, if I survive, Janie's going to kill me. Um, 
The next year we were going to Jock Mail. We were actually going for our fun day and, uh, and a tire, a wheel, not the tire, the wheel falls off the bus. We're driving up eight or 9,000 feet above sea level and, and all of a sudden the wheel comes off and, and we're going, there goes the wheel. And, and you know, the Haitians are like, oh, we got more. We got more. They did stop though. And then our guide ran down and got the wheel and he comes running back up the hill and they put it back on and, and it was flat. And so they took a, they took a screw and kind of put some, some stuff in there and put the screw back in. We drove on mostly good tires. The next year we went to Jock Mail and it's an unbelievable, unbelievable drive. It's beautiful. And we lost one of our brake lines, but, but on a bus you got two. And so they're like, we got two. We got another one. And, and I'm going, dear God, we're going to die. And, and by the way, I told George this, if you're in the mountains in Haiti, the graves are about this far apart. You know why? They bury you vertically. They don't have enough room to put, anyway, but, but that's not going to happen to you because God will provide. He's provided in the past and he's going to provide again. Some of you are supposed to go with us to Haiti. God is faithful and we're just going to keep going and keep going and keep going. When I told, um, that same year, that was 2010, that same year, I told the church that, that I believe God wanted us to be debt free. And so we were going to do the building a great life. We talk about this all the time, the bagel, you know, and you say, I love it and all that. Well, we were going to have this eight week series. And at the end of the series, we were going to do, you know, a three year pledges over and above the tithe. And so people said to me in this church, they said, nobody is going to give over and above the tithe. You're an idiot. And so we, we did this long series in the midst of that. We're about to do this series and this lady over here that where the blue house is, where we're actually going on the hayride tonight, Caleb and I were mowing the church lawn and she walks over and she goes, Hey, I hear you might want to buy my land. I'm like, sure. So we go over and we negotiate the price. So in the middle of this, this, we're about to have an eight week series and we're going, in fact, that's when you first came, wasn't it, George? First, God's got a sense of humor. The very first service we're doing of this building a great life where I'm talking about money for eight weeks, George shows up. That was a good one, wasn't it? Anyway, so we're about to do all this. And, and so I, I come back to the church and I say, hey, we're going to take up this one day offering and we need $45,000 to buy this land. And oh, by the way, on top of that, I want you to tithe. And then I want you to make a commitment for three years over and above the tithe. Cause I believe God wants us out of debt. And you know what people said? You are crazy. And so we come to the end of this building. This was February of 2010. We come to the end of this building a great life campaign. And, and I, this fear overwhelmed me because I said, there's no way this little bitty church, it is impossible for us to raise this much money. And I thought I'm a false prophet and they're going to take me out and I'm going to get stoned. And I don't mean recreationally (laughs) because in the old Testament, you were supposed to stone a false prophet with rocks. Now that, That's how I'm going to end (laughs) my pastoral career. And we got to that, that last Sunday of the campaign and we took up an offering. And when it was all said and done, that one day offering, we'd raised almost $90,000 and we had people, we had 30 families say, I will give for three years over and above the tithe to try to reduce this debt, try to get out of debt. Took us a little more than, than three years is almost four years, but we, we are out of debt. And just one year ago, y'all remember if you were here one year ago, the land, um, back here behind the church came for sale and, uh, 
we were saving up money and, and we had about $32,000 for our parking lot that we've been talking about, you know, forever. And so when, when they call me up, they just call me out of the blue and say, Hey, do you want the land behind the church? The old, uh, lumber company. I said, well, sure. And I talked to everybody. Everybody says, sure. And so I said, okay, here's the deal. We had some money. We've been setting aside money for, for years for, um, you may not know this, but we have, even when we got out of debt, we keep paying our monthly mortgage into the building a great life fund. Our monthly mortgage was $2,177. And so every month we put that over into the bagel fund so that we'll have money for buildings and things in the future. And so they call us up and so we have $32,000 there and we put a percentage aside into our, um, into our, uh, emergency fund. And then, so we took some money out of the emergency fund. We took some money out of our general fund and we had $50,000. So I came to the church and I said, Hey, we need to raise $20,000 on this one offering right before Christmas. That's a good timing. And you know what happened? And then whispers, you're nuts. When are you going to quit asking us to give? When I'm in the grave. (laughs) So we took up the offering and on that day, I think it was like 17,700. I don't remember the exact change. And I was actually defeated. I was deflated. I was like, oh man, we, we didn't get enough. And then three checks came in by Tuesday morning. And when I added them all in, we'd raised $20,710. And I was like, and we bought the land. And in one year's time, and some of y'all remember, I said, if we had a hundred families that gave $300 a month for one year, we would have, not only would we pay all of our budget, but we would have enough money for the parking lot out here. We're right at a hundred thousand dollars that we, that's separate in our building a great life fund. We'd need to get 130 to, to get everything where we want it to go. But I'm telling you that God's done it in the past. God's going to do it again. And when you pour out your heart before God, you need to remember these things. Now that's the first thing. Remember second thing, as you pour out your heart, trust God's power for your future. Trust God's power for your future. In Psalm 102, the the psalm writer is at the lowest point. If you've ever been in a pit where you thought you were going to die or you kind of hoped you were going to die, you understand where the writer of this psalm is coming from. Verse one, oh Lord, hear my prayer and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I'm in trouble. Turn your ear towards me. Answer me quickly when I call. Skip down to verse seven. I lie awake. I am lonely, like a lonely bird on a rooftop. All day long, my enemies insult me. Those who ridicule me use my name as a curse. That is not a good thing. You know, we do this now, especially with the internet thing. So if somebody goes, man, you just got wash burned. That's not a good way to use my last name. That's a curse. That's what he's saying. They're using my name as a curse. I eat ashes like bread and my tears are mixed with with my drink. So that's a bad day, right? If ashes are your, your food, then, then that's a bad day. Now he's pouring out his heart and then he comes to three words that change everything. And you, these three words are the reason some of you are here today. It's not an accident that you're here for this service. You need to hear these three words. You're saying my life is falling apart. I do not understand. I cry out to you, God, from the depths of my soul. The enemies taunt me all day long and here they are, but you Lord, but you, Lord, will sit on your throne forever. Your fame will endure to every generation. I don't understand, Lord, but you have all wisdom. I don't have the ability, but you, Lord, are all powerful. I feel like I'm alone, but you, Lord, the God of angel armies is always by my side. But you, Lord, are sitting on your throne. Even though I don't know what to do, you do because you are in charge. 
But you, Lord, look at verse 17, will listen to the prayers of the destitute. He will not reject their pleas. Some of you are about to have a but you, Lord, moment because you're going to pour out your heart for the first time. And, and you're going to complain. You're going to be honest from the depths of your soul. You're just going to pile it on. God, here's what I really feel. And if you do that, there's going to come a point where you'll push through all of the pain to the point of praise. God, I don't understand. I don't like it. I wish it were some other way, but you're still in charge. You're still on the throne. Your purposes and plans are still in place. You have plans to prosper me, Lord, not to harm me, to give me a future and a hope. You, Lord, are working all things in my life for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. But you, Lord, are in charge. Some of you have lost a loved one and and it's almost unbearable. And you need to cry out to God, quit holding it inside, and push through the pain to a point of praise. Some of you are wrecked financially, and you're saying, God, I do not know where it's going to come from. You need to push through that and say, Lord, you are my provider. You will never allow your children to go hungry. Some of you have some physical things that are going on. You need to cry out to God and say, but you, Lord, are my healer. You're afraid and you don't know what's going to happen, but you, Lord, have not given me a spirit of fear, but you give me a, a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. God, you said in Psalm 34, 18, that you would be near to the brokenhearted. I'm brokenhearted, Lord, but you said you would be near me and you would save those who are crushed in spirit. I am crushed in spirit today, God. I need you to do what you promised to do, God. And if you'll do that, you'll get to a point where God will just overwhelm your soul. And your tears will turn to praise. Your mourning just might even turn to dancing. I'm going to play for you um, Carrie Job's song, um, I'm Not Alone. And as, a, as I do, I want, you, I want you to pour out your heart to God. I don't know what's going on in your life, but he does. And he's waiting for you to be honest. And, and I've told you before that, that when I went through a very difficult time, and, and I, Janie's the only one that, that even knows what all happened, I sat right over here on, on my stool and I played this song over and over and over because it says, when I walk through deep waters, I know that you will be with me. And I wept and I just poured out my heart to God. And when I, when I got through with that, I was, I was on my feet praising and worshiping God because I don't have to face anything by myself. If you want to come up front and kneel before God, you can do that. If you want to just stay where you are, you can do that. Watch this video and pour out your heart before God.
finished the first service, and Janie and Rachel are right over here standing up, hands lifted high. Ugh. What we do matters. This is the bride of Christ. And nowhere in scriptures that talk about casually dating the bride of Christ. There's no such thing as accepting God as fire insurance. Oh God, you're my savior, but you're not in charge. That's not scriptural. Scripturally, as I bow my knees and I say, God, you're Lord. And because I make that declaration that he's the boss of my life, that's when he saves me. We got to quit treating the church like a second class citizen. Jesus loves his bride. He died for his bride. And he wants you to be involved with bringing lost people in here, walking along beside them, praying for them until they become Christ followers, until they figure out where they're supposed to serve in the church. And it just goes over and over and over again. And a healthy church is made up of lost people. Baby Christians and mature Christians. Which one are you? Would you bow your heads for a moment? If you are in a broken place now, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and you need special prayer, would you raise your hand? A lot of you. Father, I pray that you would move in such a way in each of these person, these people's lives that their soul would come to a point that they just explode with praise for you. And when people look at them and they ask, how can you be, how can you be joyful in the midst of this difficult time? All they can say is it has to be God. There is a supernatural power working inside of them that is greater than anything that is in this world. God, I pray they experience you in a new way this Christmas season and that their lives will never be the same because you healed their soul because they learned what it was like to run to you as a place of refuge, a place of safety. And you remind them how much you love them. God, do some amazing things that we wouldn't even believe if you told us ahead of time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.